Didomi is a Greek word meaning to give or has given. God gave Didomi, and out of gratitude, we give back to our neighbors and to our community, Didomi. My name is Wissam Al-Salibi. With Christian friends working in organizations that advocate for justice and peace, we came together and put together the Didomi podcast, where we share on the issues that we are working on currently. Welcome to the third episode of the Didomi podcast. My co-host for this episode is Michael Mutzner. We are both in Geneva where we work with the World Evangelical Alliance. And we have the pleasure to have with us today Pastor Vijayesh Lal. Pastor Vijayesh is the General Secretary of the Evangelical Fellowship of India, which is a member of the World Evangelical Alliance. Pastor Vijayesh will share with us on the situation of Christians and religious minorities in India and on the work of the EFI, Evangelical Fellowship of India, in support of freedom of religion or belief. But before we talk with Pastor Vijayesh, we will hear from Michael an update on the vote in Switzerland for holding multinational companies accountable for human rights and environmental violations. We had a briefing on this campaign in episode 2 of the Didomi podcast. So what happened with that vote and what is the outlook for that campaign? Yes, certainly with some. Um, you remember we had this interview uh, in our last episode with uh, Mark Yost. Uh, he's the president of the Christian NGO platform named uh, Interaction. And the interview was about uh, this initiative, Responsible Business Initiative. Um, so the vote took place just a few days after uh, the um, after our we recorded our episode, and um, uh, actually what happened is that um, uh, the, the 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 initiative uh, did not pass, though it had a majority of voters, it it failed with the majority of uh, of the cantons. So let me just maybe re- remind to our listeners what the initiative was about. Um, it's um, it was about holding uh, Swiss companies accountable for their actions abroad. Um, but uh, yeah, I said, unfortunately, it was uh, it was rejected. Mm. You mentioned uh, that it was the popular vote was received, but the majority of the cantons slash states uh, would be needed. I'm sure all our American listeners are familiar with the system, but as a Lebanese, I am not familiar with the system. <laughs> so it would be good if you could just share with us what what does this mean? How does the voting work in, in Switzerland? Yeah, it, it also made me think to, to, to some episodes of uh, Swiss of uh, U.S. elections when, when this happened to us. Uh, it's a bit different, though. Um, indeed, uh, if you, you need to have a double majority for an, initi- an initiative like this to pass in a referendum. And on the one hand, you need a majority of voters uh, in absolute terms. And uh, on the other hand, you need a, a majority of the, of the states called the canton of the 26 states. And uh, unfortunately, there was not a majority of, of the states in favor of that initiative. That's why it's failed, even though nationwide there were more people in favor that voted in favor mm-hmm. of this initiative than against it. So still, still it's, a, it's, a strong, it's a strong signal, a strong message that went through. Now, you are Swiss, Michael, and uh, you, you, you know Mark well, you know the campaigners well. Do you, do you have an idea on what is the future for this initiative or for the concept of holding multinational companies responsible for human rights violations outside of Switzerland? Well, there are several things. One is that uh, the strategy of the government has been to, to make a counter-proposal, which was accepted by the government. It, it was 
sort of to say, if the initiative is not accepted, we, we have something else in mind. Uh, there's not just uh, nothing. And so that proposal obliges, uh, that's, that will now enter in force. It obliges companies to report on human rights and environmental standards and to conduct uh, due diligence when it comes to child labor and mineral sourcing from conflict. But uh, it doesn't include a liability clause, uh, as was the case with the initiative. So it's much weaker, but still it's better than nothing. And even if the initiative did not pass, I think that the strong support it got from the population is a clear message. And the companies, they now know that they will be watched, actually. So what I also have to mention is that uh, uh, there's sort of an after um, uh, an after party happening here, uh, or or rather an after conflict. I have to mention that the political parties close to the uh, to the economic interests of the country have launched a campaign now against the NGOs mm. uh, that supported the initiative because a lot of these NGOs also receive public finances. So uh, they want to be sure, uh, they claim, that none of the public money that these NGOs receive for development aid or, or other projects are misused for political campaigning. So it's sort of a retaliation, I would say, because uh, they did not appreciate the, the NGO being so active. Mm. Also, what they did not appreciate is the churches being very active, uh, doing politics, like they said. It's not the church's role to do politics, they said. So... Uh, I think in a way, all of this is a sign of success when you trigger such such reactions. And I think uh, as far as the churches are concerned, they have proved that they are part of the civil society and that they want to have a say in matters of social justice. So, mm. so that's positive, I think. Thank you for this update. And I'm grateful for all the Christians and Christian leaders who were involved in support of this campaign. Yeah, absolutely. And now we will move to speaking with Pastor Vijay Yeshlal, again, who is the, the General Secretary of the Evangelical Fellowship of India. Hello, Pastor Vijayesh. Hello, Wissam. And hello, Michael. Hello. We're very glad first that you are in good health, Pastor Vijayesh, you and your wife. We heard that you were hospitalized with COVID, both of you. So we're grateful that you are now in, in, in a much better health. Thank you so much. Uh, and your we are grateful for the prayer support that we received. It was a difficult time, but the Lord sustained us. And we are very grateful for the body of Christ globally that stood with us in prayer. Thank you. India has uh, always claimed to be the biggest democracy in the world. We hear this often. However, recent reports and democracy indexes have noted that democracy is backsliding in India. We hear of major violations of rule of law and democratic standards that are taking place. And we also read, Pastor Vijayesh, that the COVID-19 pandemic has only aggravated the situation. So we would like to ask a first question to you is what is your assessment of the situation of rule of law, human rights and freedom of original belief in India? And the second question is, mm -hmm. what is the Evangelical Fellowship of India doing in support of human rights, religious freedom in India. It's interesting you started off by democracy, mentioning that, and also men mentioned democracy index. India, at, at, at this point of time, you know, it is the world's largest democracy, and we are very proud of it. We have a solid and robust constitution, and uh, we have mechanisms in place uh, which ensure democracy. But democracy, I would say, is being challenged 
in India to a greater degree today than uh, it has been since the time of the 1970s when emergency was declared and the constitution was suspended. Uh, it's kind of uh, the atmosphere is uh, echoing the sentiment that that was at that that point of time. Freedom of expression seems to be under threat. Uh, human rights uh, are facing challenges and freedom of religion in particular uh, for especially for minorities, religious minorities in India, uh, Christians and Muslims uh, is and also Sikhs, I would say, is challenged. So uh, democracy and human rights situation wise, India is facing a challenge right now. And uh, even though we have an elected government and yet the atmosphere in the country is boiling. As, as I speak to you for the last more than two months, uh, literally hundreds of thousands of farmers are protesting in India, demanding the repeal of the three controversial farm laws that were passed without consultation, without any public consultation. And so far, there has been no uh, agreement that they have been able to reach with the government. And the government uh, is, is taking steps like shutting down the internet, uh, you know, in, India shut down a lot of internet last year uh, just to deal with protests and everything. Uh, and right now, about an hour ago or so, Twitter India has withheld access to multiple accounts uh, on some legal demand possibly raised by the government of India. So freedom of, of, of expression is a threat. Uh, religious freedom is a, uh, is a challenge. Uh, Muslims and Christians have been targeted very often uh, Muslims are being targeted because they are essentially painted as traitors uh, who do not love their own motherland. Uh, there's the bogey of love jihad that is being used against them as well. And terrorism, of course. Uh, Christians are mm. being targeted, uh, you know, citing conversions, uh, even though the Constitution of India allows it. All religious conversions are being looked upon with suspicion. And uh, that is really unfortunate because uh, our founding fathers held the freedom of religion or belief very closely to their heart. It is the most fundamental of all freedoms. And uh, the past six months, the past one year actually, has seen many uh, states uh, coming up with their own stricter versions of anti-conversion laws. Ironically, some of them are titled Freedom of Religion Acts. And uh, but they actually restrict the freedom of religion. Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh are the latest examples. Madhya Pradesh already had uh, an anti-conversion law since the 1960s, uh, but now they have uh, passed an ordinance, quite like Uttar Pradesh, which also passed an ordinance, not a law, but an ordinance, flouting democratic procedure. Uh, and uh, this is very strict. And, uh, you know, it... It puts into question religious conversions per se. It views every religious conversion with suspicion until and unless it's proved that it was genuine. And the burden of the proof lies with the person who has been accused. So uh, things are not uh, particularly good on the count of freedom of religion as far as what has EFI done to address these issues. Since uh, <clears throat> these issues started to 
come to our notice in the late 1990s. That's when the whole conversion propaganda against the church in India started. EFI instituted the Religious Liberty Commission of EFI in 1998, September 1998. And uh, since then, the Religious Liberty Commission has advocated for religious freedom for all. We have documented cases of atrocities on religious minority, particularly Christians. And we have spoken for the religious rights and religious freedom of all faiths mm. in India uh, consistently since then. And we continue to do so. Precisely, Vijayesh, uh, we, the EFI is uh, updating regularly with reports and um, uh, is doing fact-finding about uh, incidents relating to religious freedom. What are the latest reports uh, of uh, EFI saying about this? How, how, how are the incidents evolving? And do you see already um, uh, consequences of, uh, also in terms of the number of incidents Uh, in relation to the um, to this general climate of of uh, uh, more tension and more backlash on human rights currently. Well, uh, we've been recording in per incidents of persecution against Christians since 1998, and uh, largely they were always in the domain of about 100 to 200 incidents per year. Sometimes 150, sometimes 160, kind of that. Of all the incidents mm -hmm. that happen in India, very few are reported. From the ones that are reported, we are only able to verify a few. Only the ones that we are able to verify, we put on the report. So that will give you an idea of... Uh, that's why in uh, every yearly report or every report that we take out, we always say this is not exhaustive. There are other incidents uh, apart from what we've been able to capture. However, since 2014, the incidents have slowly been rising. So, for example, in 2014, we had 147 verified cases, 252 in 2016. The figure turned to over 350 in 2017. Uh, and last year, it was 366 incidents. In 2019, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm still in 2020. And in 2020, uh, the incidents were 327 incidents. And just today, we have... Uh, Uh, you know, done an analysis of all the incident reports that we have received in the very first month of 2021. And we have recorded 29 incidents in the first month of 2021. Uh, so in, an incident a day, nearly. Every day we hear about hmm. uh, at least two or three. We are able to verify only one or two out of that. Vijayesh, can you tell us what do you mean by incident? Like, can you describe us the types of incidents that are taking place. And another question is, I mean, when we talk about a nation with one billion person, yes, do you believe that the number of incidents is relatively, I mean, it sounds relatively low for an external observer, 400 incidents, 300 incidents involving Christians? Let me put that, let me, let me put that in context. India was always, uh, you know, a very populous nation. From 1964 to 1996, uh, during that time, only 39 incidents were recorded. Only 39. Between 1964 and 1996. From 1996, the incidents started increasing. And now, what, what, we, what do we mean when we say the word incidents? Incidents usually means incidents of targeting Christians, 
opposition that they face, I mean, the incidents that the Religious Liberty Commission collects mostly pertain to Christians. Uh, opposition that they face, physical violence, church uh, disruption, worship disruption, false charges, threat, harassment, all of these uh, gender violence, all of this categorizes as an incident for us. Sometimes people also lose their lives, so murders and, you know, rapes and, uh, and those sort of things. Uh, persecution of Christians in India has a physical dimension. That this all, all that I just mentioned is included in the physical dimension, burning of churches, attacking on, of pastors and so on and so forth. And then there is structural dimension, which is targeting of schools and uh, Christian institutions and, and using laws which are against uh, minor, religious minorities in general. That is part of the structural violence. We do not uh, collate uh, or collect many instances of structural violence, but uh, it's mostly focused on the physical aspect of it. So if you consider from 1964 to 1996, there were only 39 incidents. Uh, on that count, 366 or 400 incidents a year is, is quite a bit to tell you honestly. Uh, and like I said, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many incidents that happen that we don't get to hear uh, because India is such a geographically a huge country. And then out of what we are able to hear, we are only able to verify a few. Only what we verify, we put in the report. So it is really this, in the tip of an iceberg. So that's why we say our report is an indicative report on the situation of Christians mm. in India. Yeah, so what I understand is uh, there's a clear trend that you're seeing uh, through, the, mm -hmm. uh, through the incidents you are, you are registering, uh, which is worrying. Now, I remember seeing in one of your reports uh, that... Um, the context of uh, Hindu nationalism uh, led to certain slogans uh, against religious minorities, such as uh, uh, first the butcher, then the Christians, meaning first the, the Muslims and then the Christians, uh, yes. uh, that the country want, wanted to get rid of uh, uh, religious pluralism to, to, to be a Hindu-only nation. So... How how does the Christian persecution compare to the uh, Muslim persecution? Are those similar situations that both groups are facing? Well, let me let me first put it this way: It's not that the country wants to get rid of the minorities. We have when we talk about the current intolerance in India, we have to understand where it's coming from. It's coming from an ideology called Hindutva. Now, Hindutva is not to be confused with Hinduism, because Hinduism is a religion. Uh, it, you, you, know, you, you can define Hinduism as a religion, but Hindutva is a political ideology. It strives for political control and uh, it is an uh, ideology based on exclusion and uh, it was very close to, uh, to fascism. It talks about one nation, one culture, one people. It idealizes Hitler. It had, collection, it, it had connections mm. uh, with the Nazis. And uh, this particular ideology, adherents of this particular ideology are currently in power in our country. Uh, the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party, is an offshoot of the RSS, the political arm of the RSS. And the RSS is the main proponent of the ideology of Hindutva. And it is the people who espouse this ideology, who follow this ideology, are the people who... Uh, do not tolerate religious minorities well. In fact, uh, some of their founding fathers have 
have written in their books. Uh, even when the Britishers were over here, they, they asked Hindus not to waste their energies on fighting the British or fighting for freedom per se. They said your real enemies are the Muslims and the Christians. So it, it goes way back. It started in the 1920s. And uh, the cry always has been first the Muslims and then the Christians. Uh, but even the Sikhs have not been spared. In 1984, uh, Sikhs, at least 3,000 of them were burned in Delhi, the capital of India. And recently in the farmer protest, there has been a deliberate attempt to give uh, the protest a religious color by painting the protest as the protest of the Sikhs uh, and uh, giving it a religious angle. And Sikhs are once again being targeted on social media. I hope and pray that they are not targeted physically. So, yes, people who promote and follow the ideology of Hindutva do not tolerate religious minorities well enough. As for the majority of the people in India or Hindus in India, uh, they are peace-loving people. And that is why India has so many religions that have survived over here. So I have, I have no doubt that, uh, uh, you know, the ideology of Hindutva, the divisive ideology of Hindutva will eventually fail because it is essentially against the character of India as per se. Vijayesh, I would like to go back to Michael's question. We, we, we are hearing a lot about problems also with Muslims, the Muslim population. Yes. There's 100 million Muslims in India. It's one of the world's biggest Muslim populations. And they're facing a lot of challenges and also persecution in, in some cases, we would say. I just want to ask you about um, how that would compare to problems with Christians, the violation of the rights of Christians. Okay. And also... Are the, if, if there are any opportunities for interfaith advocacy, you mentioned Sikh. Are you able to advocate together with Muslim Sikh and maybe some fact, Hindu factions for freedom of religion and human rights for all? Is that uh, possible for you in India? Yes. Uh, so as far as the targeting of Muslims vis-a-vis -vis targeting of Christians is concerned, our Muslim sisters and brothers have it much worse than us. Uh, all the major riots that have happened in India, majority of them have been against the Muslims. And uh, the, the number of uh, inmates who are in prison right now without uh, a fair trial or without any trial at all, actually awaiting their trial, many Muslims over there. So, uh, and these are all facts and figures that you can Google and find for yourself. So Muslims have it much worse than Christians as far as uh, freedom of faith and freedom of religion is concerned. Uh, and, uh, you know, they have they have their own struggles. Uh, the Muslim perception, uh, the propaganda has spoiled the perception of Muslims in India. And uh, that is a trend that is that is worrying quite a bit. Uh, lynchings have happened uh, in uh, from 2017 onwards and majority of the victims mob lynchings I'm talking about in broad daylight and majority of the victims were Muslims uh, they, they have been targeted structurally as well as well as physically so they get a lion's share of opposition and persecution uh, the Sikhs as well have been targeted uh, and Buddhists have been targeted the Dalits have been targeted uh, the Dalits, as you know, are the, so, the former, formerly they were referred to as untouchables uh, within the Hindu community. And uh, they, are the, they are the outcasts. 
And so the Dalits have been targeted quite a bit. Uh, so freedom of religion uh, is uh, is a big challenge. But there have been initiatives, interfaith initiatives, that have uh, addressed uh, these issues. And uh, we are working, uh, you know, closely with uh, Muslim groups. There are Sikh groups. And then and there are the Dalit groups. We have been able to work with them. And we have been able to raise concerns, not only with authorities over here, uh, but also globally. So, yes, th but there is still a lot of scope for interfaith cooperation. And I'm glad that communication is happening between leadership, Christian leadership, Muslim leadership, Sikh leadership, about how to take these things forward. So there is a lot of scope and there is a, a lot that we can do. And uh, whenever we are targeted, it is always encouraging when the other religious group comes to the, uh, to the aid of the another and raises their voice. We have been able to do that in the past, and we hope that we'll be able to do it much more in the future. Um, Vijayesh, I, I remember that uh, in February 2020, you wrote um, in the U.S. Uh, magazine Christianity Today that uh, U.S. President Trump's endorsement of Modi's commitment to religious freedom has let Christians down. So uh, I was wondering, what are your expectations from the Biden administration, from the new U.S. administration on the one hand, But also more generally, what are your expectations towards the international community, towards the EU, for example, or, or other stakeholders? Uh, thank you, Michael. Uh, you know, Trump's coming over here and his endorsement of uh, our prime minister's impressive track record on religious freedom was frankly a disappointment because it has hardly been impressive. Uh, he's made some good speeches And I'd like to give him the credit for that. In 2015, he gave a very nice speech, Mr. Modi, in which he said that his government will uphold religious freedom for every citizen in India. And I was very hopeful. But uh, unfortunately, we haven't seen any action on the ground. Uh, from the Biden administration, I would hope that they would continue raising these issues. Uh, the Biden administration, uh, especially Kamala Harris, appears to be quite concerned about Uh, human rights and freedom of religion. And uh, we would hope uh, that uh, human rights and freedom of religion would, you know, would also uh, come into the framework of bilateral talks that the U.S. has with India. Uh, not just for any other reason, but because both nations have a glorious record of democracy. One is the oldest democracy in the world, and the other is the largest democracy in the world. And uh, both are partners and getting increasingly closer. And any partnership has to be formed on a healthy basis. And one of the major indicators of health is the level of human rights, the level of religious freedom in another country. And as much as India holds the United States of America responsible whenever there is an attack on a Hindu temple or a Sikh temple in the United States of America, I believe the United States of America can also ask questions. Uh, when religious minorities in India are being persecuted unjustly. Uh, as far as the global commu community is concerned, uh, we I hope and pray for more understanding of the issue. Uh, you know, mm. by and large, the world now almost knows about the way Muslims have been targeted in India. But there is very little understanding about uh, how Christians are being targeted over here. 
many years ago, and I hope situations have changed, I was able to meet uh, a German MEP in the in the European Parliament in Brussels. And he told me he had just returned from Kerala. And the Prime Minister of Kerala told him that there was no persecution of Christians in India. I had to gently explain to him that there is only one Prime Minister in India and he sits in Delhi. And he might have met the Kerala Chief Minister. He didn't really have an, a real understanding mm. of those things. And then I showed him the report that we did. And he was shocked. So uh, one, one uh, hope is that uh, there would be an awareness in the international community about the way the Christian minority in India has been targeted uh, and that they would use their voice then uh, to ask the Indian government to take steps to protect uh, the religious minorities in India, Christians included. We live in a globalized world. The world has become a village, uh, so to say. And we are all mutually accountable to each other, India as well. And also India is a signatory to the Human Rights Declaration in the UN, you know, one of the original signatories. And so that's a commitment that it has to fulfill. So I hope uh, that the international community would take a notice of that and hold India to account on its record on religious freedom, on human rights and on freedom of, of expression. Vijayesh, uh, you spoke a lot about uh, difficulties and challenges that Christians are facing. What about stories of hope? What about the stories of the church being church and missional in Indian society? Can you share about more, more about that? See, that's the beauty of the church, not just in India, but everywhere. The church, even though faced with persecution, continues to give. And COVID-19 was one such opportunity uh, that the church had where we could show love and compassion and the values of the kingdom, and, and, and we did that. Uh, you know, I'm happy to report that I do not know of any church, whether it be a local church or a denomination, which did not go out of its way to provide relief to its neighboring community, to take care of the sick, uh, or to give food to the hungry. Uh, EFI itself, the Evangelical Alliance over here, we ourselves were involved in relief uh, to literally thousands of people. So far, 40,000 people have been helped. EFICOR, which is Evangelical Fellowship of India Commission on Relief, went out and they have reached to over 300,000 people. The first thing that Christians did was they, they came together and they uh, there's a body called the Christian Coalition for Health which is made up of the Roman Catholics, the Ecumenicals, and the Evangelicals. Uh, Emmanuel Hospital Association, one of our partners, one of our members, is, is also a member of Christian Coalition for Health. And they offered more than 1,000 Christian hospitals to the government for treatment during the time of COVID. So I, I see a lot of hope. See, we, this is our country. And Christians have contributed immensely uh, to nation building. And we are not going to stop just because there is a section of people that keep on keep on troubling us because and we do this because we love Christ and we do this because we love the people of India who are our sisters and brothers. So there are a lot of stories of hope. People, uh, you know, devastated people uh, who were reached out uh, to by by the church. Uh, you know, I know uh, you may have heard of the migrant crisis that India faced because of the sudden lockdown that happened. Uh, literally. Not thousands of millions of migrants were left in cities without food, without shelter, 
without a source of income because of the lockdown. And they made their way back home, most of them on foot. And I know of so many Christian groups that reached out. Just one group in Varanasi, which is our prime minister's electoral constituency also, this one group itself has been able to help more than 100,000 people. Uh, you know, uh, these are just uh, a couple of committed young people. And they were able to reach out to more than 100,000 people. Then uh, there have been networks, informal networks came up using WhatsApp, social media, throughout in, throughout India. You know, there is a neighbor, uh, there is a network called Loving Your Neighbor Network. There is a migrant crisis network. All of these church based, and they have been reaching out. I know of a few friends who have been uh, uh, burying people. You know, a lot of people died due to COVID as well, and there is. Obviously, fear nobody would want to touch their bodies, not even their family members would touch them. So I know these Christian young people, they go and, and, and they take these bodies and they bury them, give them a decent funeral. Or if they are Hindus, they cremate them, give, give them a decent, uh, uh, you know, farewell. So there have been a lot of stories of hope at, at this point of time. And uh, the government also really appreciated the way not only the church, but also other religious minorities and their organizations, they came up and they started helping the nation in the time of need. I think that's beautiful. And that's why I always have hope for India. Thank you, Vijayesh. Thank you for ending our conversation on a really hopeful note and giving us much material to pray for, giving us many stories to pray for to lift up the church in India, the EFI, and yourself and your family in our prayers in the coming weeks. Thank you so much. And um, we look forward to having you over in, a, in the future for updates on the situation of the churches and the situation of the Christians in India. Thank you so much for joining us on this conversation. Thank you for the opportunity. I, I, I will look forward to another session where I you know, possibly can update you on the latest that is happening. Thank you so much, Wissam and Michael. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on the third episode of the Didomi podcast. We believe that God gave us so much. God loves us. And because he loved us, we love people around us. Just like Vijayesh said, you know, we love Christ, Christ loves us, and then we love the people around us. And Didomi means to give. And we believe in giving back to the community and helping out, just like the church in India does. We thank you for joining us on the third episode and we look forward to having you on future episodes. Please don't forget to follow us and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app to follow us on Twitter. And if you like this episode, put a comment on Apple Podcast on our episode. That would help people know more about the Domi podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye.